0: Welcome to Transition, the Farmers Weekly podcast for farmers seeking a more sustainable future for their farm business. In this series, we examine profitable farming methods which also protect and enhance the environment. We ask, do they really work? How can they work for you? And why might you want to consider them on your farm? Today, podcast co-host Hugh Broom is visiting Devon dairy farmers Richard and Rachel Risden, who farm near Exeter. As well as a decent return from their milk, the couple say they face a number of other challenges as they seek to become more sustainable. But first, Rachel describes the farm business.
1: We are in the X Valley, just north of Exeter. It's sort of a clayish soil with about 34 inches of rain. We're on a hill down to the valley, so the hill originally was all arable and the bottom is all flood meadows. So we've got about 300 spring-carving dairy cows on a grass-based system. Yeah, we do feed some. It's actually a blend in the parlour, but pro- primarily to fill the gaps in grass growth. We focus a lot on health of our cows and tightness of our calving block
2: the farm when you came here five six seven years ago you effectively came to what was a beef and sheep farm
1: hardly any beef at all it was just basically all arable on the hill and sheep on the flat meadow lands around by the river and a few permanent pastures on the hill
2: and you've effectively built the dairy infrastructure from scratch in terms of milking area cow housing silage clamps have all magicked out of the ground just talk us through what we've got here cuz looking at this milk lovely milking parlor here in the glorious sunshine as we are at the moment with a lovely light warm wind blowing in this is a new zealand type open parlor on the side of a devonshire hill does it get cold
1: sometimes not very often
2: <laughs> and I suppose because you're carving in February, you, you in theory, m- get more hot days than cold days.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, it, yeah, you can't deny that. Obviously, in the beast from the east, it was a bit challenging. But, you know, that doesn't happen that many years and not very many days of the year.
2: And in terms of why you chose to build a parlour like you have done, was that down to... um the, the cost or just how you wanted it to work what was the incentive for a lot of people to put a new parlour in and they would go down the more traditional route of fully enclosing it and, and doing one thing another
1: i suppose we've both lived and worked in new zealand rich built from scratch his own parlour at home um alongside the other one so he, you know had time to do that this one was built by a kiwi chris Randrup because we didn't have time when we moved here we We were able to get early entry on this field so when the previous um chap um had harvested his wheat we we came in and were able to start doing the groundworks in this field before uh, so that was in about july um of the year that we moved in in september um and um yeah so we were able to start doing the work in here but you know we didn't we had to also build a cubicle shed for the cows to arrive in December and uh, uh, put a concrete pad in that's turned into a silage pit and put in the slurry pit and and do all of you know the fencing and everything to make it all happen so yeah that's why we got Chris in to build the parlor
2: And rich in terms of talk us through the design of the parlor how, how many um, points does it have how does it work
1: it's
3: just a, a basic 24 swing over parlor um we really you know you've only we've only we only had so much money to invest um so we didn't we wanted a good return on what we did invest so uh 24 sets is pretty much optimum for one person so during the spring and in the autumn if if, if we need to wipe case, um we will be in here with two people other than that most of the season it's a one man um one man system
2: and in terms of how long it takes so when you're now up to 300 cows how long does it take to put 300 cows through this parlor
3: it's about two and a half hours yeah um in the morning in the morning probably something like that um and
2: you have the ability to do the uh you've got in parlour feeders here as well
3: yeah well the parlour feeders uh at home on the home farm we used to have a wagon uh, because there wasn't any parlor feeders, but that's, all right. that's
2: the ice bank just starting out <laughs> the cooler. It's the agitator on the posh milk tank.
3: So um, here it was just it was just uh, easy for you know very simple system just to be able to pull the pull the pull the ropes and feed cows, uh, especially you know when we dry it, dry it in the summer, or if we need it early spring.
2: The parlour itself is a is a simple design, isn't it?
3: Yeah, very simple, so it's very little electronics. Um, feeders are all like a pig type feeder where you just pull a rope.
2: So you just pull this string up here and then yeah. it just, it just it, the, the auger, the, the centerless auger is going at the top and as you pull the, the string, it just goes into the into the hopper.
3: Yeah, that's it. So, so they're all set on the same. So we, we feed the herd uh, at a herd level, flat rate, and we can change that easily enough, but not for individual cows. Um, no ACRs, uh, just take them on and take them off. Uh, the pulsator is a Reed system, which is there's basically one motor at the end, so there's no electronics for individuals. Um, very little maintenance. Uh,
2: so I mean, there is virtually no electronics in this parlour at all, is there? I mean, it's
3: just it's back corner there. Yeah, just at the back there by the milk vessel. There's um, yeah, just a motor for the pulsator and the milk pump that's pretty much it
2: and the idea of that gives you resilience and you you, it keeps costs down presumably and and it doesn't leave you vulnerable if it breaks down
3: yeah it's yeah it's reliable and it's just easy cleaning you know you anybody can put the steam cleaner over anything um and they know it's not going to cause damage or call out charges
0: you're listening to the farmer's weekly transition agriculture podcast For more information, visit www.fwi.co.uk forward slash transition.
1: 1,991 of Arla's UK farmer owners have taken part in Arla's Climate Check programme, counting their farm emissions so they can know the best ways to reduce them. The
0: problem that I feel that we have is the amount of nitrogen fertiliser that we use to produce all this grass. Well, if we can actually produce that nitrogen by putting leguminous crops in, they create their own nitrogen to feed the plant themselves. We A aren't buying it and B it reduces a problem of nitrous oxide in the atmosphere. So the things we're doing to reduce our carbon footprint, we're pushing our AD plant forward. We have a solar park and they are using waste heat to dry straw to use as animal bedding. Well one thing that we're doing, uh, the grass that grows, we used to cut it three times a year, now we're going to cut it four times and by doing that the grass is shorter, but the protein content of that grass is much higher. For the nutritional value you get out of dairy, you know, as dairy farmers, especially our farmers, we're showing that we're producing that milk in a responsible manner the farmer's weekly transition agriculture podcast
2: we're in a small office now which is just off the main milking parlor this is at one end of a small low building at the far end is the there's the bulk tank all the cooling all the vacuum equipment and then at this end we're at the sort of dairy office end there's a lavatory and all the electrical breakers and on the wall here Rich, is a really nice whiteboard with a plan of the farm drawn what do you use that
3: for it's mainly just for communication with the staff uh Not only have we got that big one there, we've also, the staff have got pocket maps if they need them or there's, you know, we're always printing off them for contractors. Uh, We always shade in which paddocks are being made for silage. Everybody knows what's happening. Um, It's just really good for communication, really.
2: And in terms of you've got all the paddocks marked up where all the electric fence divisions are and then they're all numbered.
3: Yeah, all numbered. Uh, Yeah, all numbered up to like 60, but
2: yeah, um, so, so it's pretty straightforward in the sense if a contractor turns up or someone that hasn't been on the farm turns up, you can say, right, we're putting the cows back into number forty two. Or yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. What health and safety policies do you have in place?
1: Um, I suppose uh, w- alongside our big map, we've got laminated sort of A four size maps which have got all the hazards on them, which we can give to contractors. So we have a few hazards. We have the railway line. We have a very big river. We have a gas main. Um, We've got overhead, massive big national grid overhead pylons.
2: (laughs) You've got quite a few hazards out there then.
1: Yeah, so we just, you know, highlight them. I mean, to be honest, most of them, once you know how to work with them, so that's the key thing when a new member of staff comes, Rich spends, you know, the first couple of weeks pretty much completely with them. Um, You know, and although it might be the main line to London and it's very fast, um, it's actually much safer than having a road because it's quite simple. You ring, and the signalman says you ask him for a certain amount of time. You've either got the time, or you haven't, uh, and you know you you just follow the rules, and and it's fairly straightforward and actually completely safe. So,
2: in terms of you have some paddocks that are across the railway line, so that requires you to to, to cross the railway line. So you have to time presumably you have to time when you want to milk those cows to the railway timetable to be able to get the cows home
1: no we never. we don't put milking cows over so we wouldn't have time slots we if we when we move young stock over the line um we if you ask for three minutes or more so when we move which we then we then they actually change the signals, so they'll tell you yes, you can have your three minutes um but then you have to ring back when the time when you've safely crossed over um we also silage quite a lot of the ground over the line, and um, so we have to we basically stand on the phone all the time ringing and speaking in constant communication with the signalman or whether it's safe to cross or not.:
2: So that's quite a change. So in, and in terms of other where do you I don't know where do you identify other safety risks within your farm business? There's the obvious ones railways, gas mains, overhead pipes, uh, overhead lines, etc.
1: Um, well, we do have bulls um so we've got yeah we've got we have got angus bulls um and uh so we you know we wouldn't we would don't and most of when they're in with the herd um we make a point of always getting them out of the collecting yard partly for their own feet safety but they never come they never ever come in the parlour um and they get used to quite quickly to being trained to come out and go straight back with the first lot of cows um and also we you know we'd expect people to always work in twos around when there are bulls but the bulls are basically never housed
2: and in terms of just general livestock handling what's your 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 method here i mean you presumably you're always using a crush or they're behind hurdles
1: yeah when you're when you're examining cows or doing something we've got a vet race as we call it just a simple uh, herringbone race alongside the parlor that you know a lot of jobs tb testing scanning and things would be in um the, i guess one of the other risks would be the slurry pit We've got deer fencing around our slurry pit and massive big signs warning that it's a slurry pit because probably only about 100 yards from our slurry pit there is a public footpath and obviously they shouldn't be wandering, but they could be wandering. But they'll they have to try quite hard to get into our slurry pit.
2: At least you've made an effort to stop them getting into the slurry <laughs> yeah, pit. Yeah. So leading on from the your health and safety policy, effectively, in terms of how you handle the livestock and I suppose how you you know how you treat your livestock on the your cows on the farm what what sort of things do you do there to try and mitigate risk and to make them easy to handle i suppose
1: yeah we like our cows to be really quiet um some of them are fairly tame and i suppose could be considered annoying by some people but we'd much rather they were really quiet um we've always sort of spent quite a bit of time with calves especially and um i read a study this year um by the cow signals chap which basically said you need to spend 20 minutes a day with your heifer calves to get them I think it's the first few weeks of life to, to make them particularly quiet. So we commissioned our children to go heifer calf cuddling. And they did take it fairly seriously. You, you know, you'd you'd wonder where they were and you, you'd find them cuddled up under a heat lamp with a bunch of heifer calves.
2: And do you think that's proven good time spent?
1: Yeah, I do. I do. Genuinely do. We had a first calf heifer this year who sadly slipped on a bit of um, cleansing on a slight slope. And she sort of almost did the splits and we were a bit worried that she was going to do the splits. Um, and unfortunately, the herd was coming out d- directly past where she was. Um, typically, the tractor then wouldn't start straight away when we wanted to lift her carefully out to the field. Um, so we just got our children out to come and sit and quietly talk to her whilst we got everything straight. And then she was fine.
2: <laughs> yeah, whereas it could have gone the other way if she panicked and, and all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's fantastic
0: you're listening to the farmers weekly transition agriculture podcast for more information visit www.fwi.co.uk forward slash transition every farmer knows changes to the basic payment scheme is coming
2: and by 2027 the current subsidies will have been completely withdrawn action is needed to make the transition if you have questions around bps whether reductions will negatively impact your business how well is the farm performing or is the business fit for the future ahdb can help you get the answers you need all courtesy of the ahdb farm business review paid for by defra's future farming resilience fund dairy and cereals farmer peter shawcross before the consultation I had very little idea of what the farm would look like once BPS had finished. With the consultation, with the modelling we used, I have got a much better idea of what the farm will look like going into the future. For
0: free help, visit ahdb.org.uk. The Farmer's Weekly Transition Agriculture Podcast.
2: So we're stood in a cubicle shed here, Rachel, with two self-feed silage pits at one end. Um, and then several rows of cubicles. How many cows can you accommodate in here?
1: So we've got 316 cubicles um, in five rows altogether, um we met we made it so we can the far clamp we generally bring in our maiden heifers in november before we house the cows um just open up that clamp they come in for a week or two um and then and then the cows come in they usually go out for a week so because they've won't have been on concrete basically their whole life so the feet start getting a little bit tender all round. we put them outside for a bit and then they come back in and as we Normally the first cows that we dry off are the first carved heifers predominantly um, and so they join them and make up a whole double row of smaller animals together with less competition.
2: And then through the winter effectively the cows once they're dried off they just self-feed and it's a fairly simple system.
1: Yeah just move the wire once or twice a day. We do scrape the yards we did originally think we might make it all tractor free but flood washing's a whole nother ball game so we thought we'd just scrape
2: so you have to scrape out so it it, it means that winter time for you on this farm is hopefully a fairly steady um low impact um experience
1: yeah it's yeah it is pretty simple so it means yeah the cows are all dried off like i say, about a week before christmas um, and then the official plan start of carving is about the 15th of February, which in reality means usually there'll be a few heifers carving. The last couple of years, nothing's carved before about the 1st of Feb.
2: And in terms of the cubicle design and how you, you, you decided the layout, what was the thinking behind that?
1: Um, yeah, the main things we just wanted, you know, nice, comfortable cubicles. Um, and we've got plenty of um, whatever you want to call them, walkthrough places. So there aren't any dead ends at all. So you shouldn't get bullying of cows at all.
2: So it's good circulation wherever they happen to be. Basically, they can get past and get to the silage.
1: Yeah, the the, the passageways are pretty wide as well. Yeah.
2: When you start carving, so then it, so, so pretty much as soon as they, they they would almost carve out of here into the and they're straight back out onto grass.
1: Uh, well, we pick them twice a week down into the carving yard. So they actually carve in a straw yard. Cause we aim for them to have a couple of weeks really in the straw yard. They carve there and then go straight out to grass.
2: So then they're just going down there in their teams of whatever as they're, as they're coming through, effectively the batches are coming close to calving.
1: Yeah, and we we, we don't we don't pre-group them by due dates, um, especially heifers. There's quite a big variation compared to due dates. We tend to judge primarily by looking at the animal or the other.
2: Yeah, just seeing how close they look to calving, yeah. effectively. It,
1: it also means that all your maiden heifers are run through the parlour many times before they calve, which is great.
2: Going forward with this business, Rachel, um, you've in a very short period of time established a dairy unit on what was formerly a sheep farm. And the next set of challenges ahead are many because of what's going on within the market, what's going on within the support system. Um, One of your challenges you've highlighted is is labour. How does the labour work on this farm and, uh, at the moment and how do you see that being a challenge going forward?
1: Rich obviously works full-time and p- predominantly manages things. I work half-time as a vet and half-time here slash being a mum and uh, then we've got uh, one well two full-time pe- members of staff now. We had one and a half. We do have a small milk vending business which sort of added a bit more in and we did allow a bit of extra l- labor for this spring with the um, needing to keep calves. Potentially we thought we we're going to end up keeping most of our calves to eight weeks, but we've actually managed to sell most of them younger. Um, so we, yeah, we view our, our two job really, I suppose predominantly as one's a sort of a sort of quite a young person, It'd be a great job to do for a couple of years to learn, to move on. Um, the, se- the second role, the lad who's working for us at the moment is, is, You know it's an ideal job for two three years he's completely aiming to take on and manage a a herd um probably in the next year or so of of his own so um, we really enjoy training people and helping people to learn um and yeah I, I, i suppose we've both having lived and worked in new zealand before and and that's how a lot of those um farms work and i i think that's how we we see what we can offer and how we what we find enjoyable
2: are you worried at all about succession in terms of the next candidates coming forward
1: yeah, you do, it is a bit of a worry because when you look, um, you know, at the the two two main places on Facebook that, or two or three probably, farmers free ads, job shop, and the grazing gurus and pasture profit are absolutely full at the moment with job adverts. There are so many people advertising, and I've got a friend who works at one of the local ag colleges, and she said they've got very very few applicants at the moment. So, what do you say? What's the
2: answer to that? Do you pay them more? Do you, do you add more benefit? How do how do you manage that? Do you think?
1: And we've always been happy to have people from completely non farming backgrounds and uh, you know providing people are keen to learn um you know a girl who who's well she still works for us a little bit part time but who worked here full time for a while um she She came from a horsey background and had worked as a chef before and a seamstress um <laughs> all sorts, but she was so keen and so you know keen to learn and I think having worked with horses, she was good with bigger animals and she was a good very she's a very good stockman
2: what do you see as other benefits you need to offer to, to to bring people in to work for you
1: I think I think having you know good work life balance is important so we always finish up even in carving time apart from the occasional day by 6 o'clock this time of year you know try, try and aim to finish up more like 5.30ish um, we work on a rotor. I'm a vet so I have a fixed rotor for, for the year you know we planned out the rotor. everybody knows um, through carving people are on every other weekend um, with a half day off a week and then after that, um, we drop down to one in four on weekends. So three out of four weekends, people are completely off. And I personally, that's, you know, we, we could swap it around. I know some people do half weekends and things, but I think most of us value having a whole weekend off and would rather do that and then just work, you know, one in four weekends on
2: and what do you do in terms of what's your policy in terms of in terms of training when people are working for you how does the the training work do you do you fund training for them
1: um so yeah the first couple of weeks or so they spend nearly completely with rich obviously it depends on what previous experience you know people have got um but then we yeah we we get people to go on courses depending definitely we sent each person who's worked here on a teat ceiling course for example at my practice um a lot of the rest of it then we do do in-house because i am a vet so um we try and we we're belong we're members of discussion group that meets once a month um so as much as possible we try and all go or at least as much many people as possible go to that depending on how far away it is in the time of year um and then but we also on there that's a Wednesday one Wednesday a month and the other Wednesdays of the month we try and have a sort of a prolonged lunch meeting and we'll talk through mastitis or yonis or or whatever and sort of do a sort of a learning session and um, we had a new member of staff start just a couple of months ago so we challenged our existing member of staff to <laughs> to do a bit of training for her whilst we we're around the kitchen table see how much she'd taken on board from last year. Yeah. You're
0: listening to the Farmer's Weekly Transition Agriculture Podcast. For more information, visit www.fwi.co.uk forward slash transition.
3: Hi, I'm Ben Wixey from Germinal and you're listening to Sam Chesney, Grassland Farmer of the Year, talking about the benefits of grass and clover.
0: We've been using Germinal grass seed mixes now for quite a long time. Some of the Aber varieties that, that we do use, Aberghee and Aberclard, we're really impressed with the Red, red Clover Aberclard and where we grow a lot of it actually for finishing cattle and it's an excellent product. Our silage analysis this year for the Red Clover was 21% protein and 11 ME and you couldn't buy meal better and the growth rate is phenomenal here. While we're feeding that, we're feeding a 10% blend instead of a 13% blend so we're saving 3% of protein at 8 percent. We try to purchase as little, purchase feeds as possible and grow as much grass, whether it be red clover for silage, whether it be red start for grazing cattle in the the autumn to winter time, or whether it be grass during the summer. We're measuring grass every week, so at the end of the year we can see which fields have performed well and which fields haven't performed.
3: For more information, go to germinal.co.uk.
0: The Farmers Weekly Transition Agriculture Podcast.
2: When we look at the business overall, and you've come a long way in five six seven years you know if you stood here where we are now six years ago or seven years ago we'd just be in a sheep field didn't we yeah. so what you've done is amazing in a short period of time labour is potentially a challenge what are the other challenges you identify going forward for the, the business as a whole
1: i suppose it's the whole elms thing which is just don't, just don't even really know where to begin because we just don't i don't really know what what we can do and what we can't do and um yeah, we, this farm was in higher level stewardship when we very first came here. Um, well, luckily for us, all the most of it was margins around arable fields, and fortunately, they're allowed to be grass for two years, which they hadn't done. So we put them all to grass, which is what we were intending to do. Um, um, we've got yeah, we've got quite a lot of acres, ten or so acres of really old cider orchards, which we use for calves baby calves but after that we don't really keep much in them because the cows and older animals would debark the trees um yeah we've got we've got bees in there um we, we've, uh, we've got people who who um, manage the orchards and take the apples for cider um but they still cost us the same rent <laughs> and what do you uh
2: what, i mean how important is the, the the bps as it stands now how important is it to to this particular business and if that's gone By 2027, where does that? What position does that leave you in?
1: Um, Well, obviously, just literally falls out out of your your income, doesn't it? Um, You know, we'll we'll still be profitable, just that chunk of money's gone, and and I don't know what's directly going to replace it.
2: So the option is, I mean, could you put more cows on here?
1: No, we're not. We're we're more more or less at our comfortable stocking rate, probably for maximizing efficiency of the farm you know we're we're pretty much up to we we set this farm up, hoping that we might we thought we'd probably get to two eighty cows we've been able to take on a few extra acres that we we didn't think we would do, but that's pushed us up to the three hundred but that 's what we set the infrastructure up for that 's what we 've got the land for we'd only end up having to import more feed to do that which wouldn't probably be cost efficient Um we, we want to maximize our grazed grass.
2: So it's effectively the challenge is I suppose is to work in whatever land management premiums there are be it through Elms, HLS or stewardship whatever it turns out to be is is the the challenge is trying to work that around the existing system without impacting it
1: yes pretty much yeah when we've we looked at um mid-tier stewardship um for the orchards and things but they weren't really interested unless we were going to put the whole farm in um and when we've some of the the options we looked at It is just quite baffling and confusing, I find. Um, And most of them seem to detract from your overall profitability without replacing them enough.
2: So in some cases, it almost might be that you could end up in three or four years' time with no schemes, not being part of anyone, head down and just produce milk.
1: It's possible. It's possible. We're not in a catchment-sensitive area, despite the fact that we're near a very big river, (laughs) So we, you know, we're not eligible for all of those sorts of grants and things that other people just across the road are. What do you?
2: What would be good, do you think, to, to to come out of Elms? What would you know very little? We all know very little about it because there's been very little detail other than top line, vague stuff that's been pushed out there. What would be good for this business to come out of Elms? Do you think?
1: I don't. I don't. I don't, genuinely don't really know. I mean, you know, if there's if there are things that improve. Well, certainly don't detract from our profitability that are better for the environment. You know, we're we're very science-led people. So, you know, if there's if there's some good evidence that managing your grazing a different way or planting certain things will um, you know, is better for the environment and also either doesn't detract from your profitability or improves it, then then we'll definitely follow that evidence. Um, yeah, the bird life here is phenomenal. Um, but it's hard to know who to ask for guidance. Um, it's all much more arable based. It doesn't seem to be huge amounts of guidance that I've easily come across anyway for what we can do as grassland farmers. We've planted quite a lot of hedgerow hedge completely at our own cost but where it seemed appropriate as we've made changes here and there. Um, but we don't know if we've done the best thing or in the right way or whatever. It's There it just doesn't seem to be enough guidance. You know, we did feel we wanted when the farm finished in higher level stewardship. I felt that we wanted to be in some sort of scheme, mainly because if you do things like plant, you know, uh, 250 meters of hedgerow, they don't think nobody says you have statistically the government statistics say you're another farmer who's doing nothing for the environment. So we wanted to be in a scheme so that we counted for the statistics to make farming as a whole look better, even though don't make any odds from but but there's like say so the schemes just didn't seem to fit they seem to penalize you're
0: listening to the farmer's weekly transition agriculture podcast for more information visit www.fwi.co.uk forward slash transition
2: to support the sustainability and efficiency of Welsh farms, Habiki Cymru Promotion Wales is running a five-year Red Meat Development programme. We are here in the heart of Cymardenshire to hear about Caris Jones' involvement in the work.
1: We're one of the leader flocks in the Hill-Ram scheme. It's certainly helping our farm. We're able to identify the correct genetics. We're able to identify ewes that perform in a 100% grass-fed system. And then Plus enables those genetics to perform to their maximum by reducing the disease in the ewes.
0: The Farmers Weekly Transition Agriculture Podcast.
2: What work have you done so far on carbon footprinting, and and how easy is that to, for you guys to understand and and change your business accordingly?
1: Um, so we are Ala farmers, so we have done the Ala carbon footprint thing. Um, we are um, in a family business with another you know other dairy unit, so that means the way that Ala do it, they are sort of put together. You know, the other farm farms similarly to us, but a very different topography and rainfall but i guess the main thing is that we'd like feedback from them or through some other agency however they want to do it or, or or whether we pay for it. even we just don't again know how what it means you know there's figures but what what can we do what can we realistically improve upon and so we've just focused really on that whole thing liz jennifer li- alluded to in that last podcast which was about most of the things um you know in terms of increasing your sustainability improving your carbon footprint and your profitability all come down to technical efficiency and so that's what we continue to focus on is maximizing the amount of grass we grow per hectare m- amount of grass we utilize um improving the health and fertility of our cows um you know this herd is bbd and ibr monitored free we're monitoring and massively reducing our yonis um and um and fo- yeah, focusing as we said before, very hard on on the fertility of our cows,
2: and that's good. Like you said, that just good technical management goes in hand in hand with reducing your emissions profile. What other things are you doing on this farm to actually? Make sure that the cows are the most efficient and the best suited for the system that you have?
1: So, the past few years, um, we started weighing our cows to get their mature body weight. So, we weigh them in about July time. So, it's meant to be the time where there's least effective pregnancy um, and they should be at sort of their average body condition for the season. Um, so, we yeah, individually weigh each cow. And then putting that against their, um, milk recording data. So the idea is to look at their individual kilos of milk solids production per year compared to their live weight as a percentage. So, um, The target that was sort of discussed was to have something in the order of a 500 kilo cow producing 500 kilos of milk solids off 500 kilos of cake a year because obviously you can massively sway your milk solids by just feeding them a load more cake. But, you know, the idea that we want to just use the cake predominantly to fill in the gaps when the grass is slightly short.
2: So effectively by having that, if you will, those three metrics around the cow you can then better develop what you breed as replacements and 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 hopefully get all your cows into a more uniform place
1: mm-hmm. yeah and, and I, I suppose the things we've you know we've we started with 220 cows here and we've now at 300 so we've you know it's the culling has not been we haven't really been culling, we've been expanding, we've been culling only what, you know, you need to get rid of. Um, we're now much more in a position where we can look at individual cows and, you know, quite often some of the really big cows, yes, they might be producing some of the largest amounts of milk, but not on a very efficient basis. So, um, you know, when you look at the figures, quite interesting, cows will vary from sort of in the 50s of efficiency to over a 100%.
2: That's a huge variation.
1: Yeah, it's, it's massive, but we, you know, we haven't made huge decisions on that basis yet. It's been involved in, you know, involved in individual cow decisions because um, you've got to be doing enough milk recording. And um, until last before before last year, we were only milk recording three times a year. So we've increased that um, so that we've got much more accurate data.
2: And so going forward, the idea would be to apply that metric across the whole herd And bring the whole herd closer to that 100% figure and be losing these ones that are 50% behind.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: Which in terms of the impact that will have on your business, your bottom line is is huge potentially.
1: Yeah, it's really huge because you're not talking about feeding them more. You're not talking about having extra cows or anything. You're just having a cow who eats the same amount of grass, same amount of cake, but produces more for for the size of her.
2: Yeah, I mean it's a no-brainer in terms of of, of of what you're going after. When do you envisage the whole herd having been through that filter, as it were?
1: Well, we've already started to sort of take that into account um, because last year we, you know, we were more or less to numbers, and we had plenty of replacements coming through. We've got a lot of replacements still in the pipeline at the moment, so we are, yeah, we are in a position to start using that information.
0: You're listening to the Farmers Weekly Transition Agriculture Podcast. For more information, visit www.fwi.co.uk forward slash transition. Are you lost in subsidy options beyond BPS?
2: At ProMar International, we're committed to helping you minimise the impact of a changing farming horizon on your business. With over 50 years of experience providing practical advice to farmers, we'll get under the skin of your farm business to ease the pressures of a new funding regime. Our network of passionate farm and sustainability consultants will combine strategy and resilience to set out clear and simple steps for building a successful
0: future. Get in touch with the team today. The Farmers Weekly Transition Agriculture Podcast. Rich, um, how
2: important are discussion groups in terms of what you do here day to day?
3: It's brought us from where we were, really. Um, and our group probably started back in about 99, 2000, uh, with trips to Southern, southern Ireland. Um, a lot of good grass guys there that we learnt from. Um, it then led on to, <laughs> to, to me meeting my wife at discussion group, I guess. <laughs> was that was that plan
1: no 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 But I was just a farm vet who found one of my clients Nick and Julie Granger that I that they'd been to Ireland came back really excitedly explaining three leaf rye grass growth and things to me and I used to have a Wednesday off once a month I never used to know what to do with it and they um uh yeah they had somebody coming over brianie fitzgerald and said oh you ought to come and do this anyway so i ended up before i knew it going on a study tour to ireland and uh then our discussion group was formed from two or three study groups after about i think probably about two or three years there had been loads of funding for consultants and stuff that all dried up and we were everyone was asked to chip some money in the pot and um and that's when quite a few farms left, but actually it formed a really core cool group. But yeah, as a vet, I used to just um, make sure I engineered my day offs to be when they were and then sort of lurk in the background, hoping nobody would ask me anything too taxing whilst I learnt loads of stuff. And uh, yeah, and then, then, yeah, Rich and I got together. and
2: R- yeah. Rich was st- stood in the background as well. Yeah, listening.
1: <laughs> what's, so what's the name of
2: the discussion group you guys are involved with?
3: Uh, Grassmasters. Yeah, Grassmasters. Um but it's very it's a very close group uh, a very trustworthy group we you know we discuss all figures everything within the group and it stays within the group we um we're quite a spread area I guess really probably over probably 50 to 60 miles from one end to the other I guess um
2: but so, so it's predominantly southwest based um dairy businesses in there
3: They would all be grass based New Zealand type systems I guess Um, We have looked at other systems. There's a few autumn carvers within that group. Um, One or two might have some uh, chicken units as well within that group, but the core would be dairy.
2: And how important is the, I mean, in terms of those meetings and in terms of for your business, how important is it to what you do day to day?
1: Just a key way to learn. You always you're learning from everyone else. Obviously, you learn from your consultants. We're a completely independent group and have been for a long time. It was set up by LIC Livestock Improvement Corporation originally, um, but we've been independent for a long time. So we nominate a chairman and secretary who do two year stints. It sort of rotates around. So they slightly set the agenda. Obviously, everyone you know has a say. But we, you know, we decide which consultant we're going to use at the moment we're using ollie hall from anderson's um and you know obviously they they have certain things that they particularly like to talk about um and uh yeah you you learn from your consultant but you know ultimately you're learning an awful lot from the others in the group and you're learning from you know it's the the warts and all approach isn't it it's learning from people's mistakes you know when people have problems with calf health and things like that that's and also it makes you feel you know when you sometimes we normally don't have a meeting in february because everyone's too busy Is it Feb- yeah and then and then you know come april or something you get there and you're pretty tired um and you might be thinking everything's not going great and then you catch up with everyone else and you realize you're not in the worst boat either (laughs) that can cheer you up quite a lot though. you know or or you can just you know you can offer advice to other people and and because it's a you know it's a good close group with you know we've got a whatsapp group and everything that you know there's there's all sorts bandied around a lot of a lot of laugh and fun but also people will put serious questions on, on there and um yeah it's just a very supportive network
0: You have been listening to Rachel and Richard Risden talking to Hugh Broom for the Farmer's Weekly Transition Agriculture podcast. You can find out more about Rachel and Richard and the Farmer's Weekly Transition project by visiting www.fwi.co.uk forward slash transition. The website there contains lots of advice and ideas about farming in a way that is profitable as well as being good for the environment will be visiting another farmer soon as they seek to secure a more sustainable future for their farm business. Until then, from Farmers Weekly, I'm Johan Tasker. Goodbye and thank you for listening.